Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at how to uncover high-capacity innovators in your organization, common traits of the most successful innovators, common missteps companies make in forming innovation teams, and some of the benefits you stand to gain by becoming more adept at spotting the true innovators in your organization. Here with us today to discuss all that is Jeffrey Phillips of Ovo Innovation. Jeffrey is the author of, most recently, Relentless Innovation, What Works, What Doesn't, and What That Means for Your Business. He's also an avid blogger who's been writing about innovation at the Innovate on Purpose blog since 2005. In 2010 and 2011, Innovate on Purpose was named the second best innovation blog in the world by innovationexcellence.com. Jeffrey's company, Ovo Innovation, is a North Carolina-based innovation consulting firm that focuses on the front end of innovation, helping clients grow new sources of revenue, market share, and profits. Just last week, Ovo unveiled a new innovation assessment tool to help companies identify individuals within their organizations who have unlocked innovation capacity. In conjunction with the assessment tool, They also just published a white paper called Unusual Suspects, Identifying High-Capacity Innovators in Your Organization, both of which are available at ovoinnovation.com. Welcome to the podcast, Jeffrey. Thanks, Will. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So thanks again for joining us. Let's kick things off today talking about the assessment tool and white paper that we just mentioned. What was the genesis for their creation? Well, you know, we've been in the innovation space for about 10 years, and in many, many clients, we've heard um, the usual refrain, which is, who should we place on an innovation project and who are our best innovators? And experience being a good teacher, after being asked that question, I don't know, 30 or 40 times, we finally decided that perhaps we ought to be involved in helping our clients identify who were their best innovators and how to build good innovation teams. And one of the things that we've found over that period of time is that many corporations, when faced with doing innovation work, will revert to selecting people who've been really successful in the day-to-day operations. So they'll look to good project managers or product managers or other people who have been very successful. And there's a lot of logic to that. You want to pick people who understand how to um, build teams and manage teams effectively um, when you're doing innovation, but the challenge is that many of those people who've been successful in the day-to-day operations are often really tightly wedded to existing processes or existing products, and they may not be the expansive thinkers or have all the traits and skills that you'd want to have on an innovation team. And what we've also found is that in many of our clients, we we were able to identify people who were very innovative but weren't likely to get selected to be on an innovation team for a various number of reasons. Sometimes very innovative people may rub the culture the wrong way. They're asking questions or being provocative. So they may be less likely to be included in an an innovation activity when you're only selecting the best folks. So we found a really interesting dichotomy. A lot of innovation teams are staffed with people who are really successful in the current business but may not be as expansive or as creative as you'd want to be in an innovation activity. And people who were going overlooked in an organization who had innovation capability, but for one reason or another weren't brought onto those teams. 
Okay, so you mentioned being kind of a, a squeaky wheel is something that you may look for in somebody to add to an innovation team. What are some of the other traits to look for in individuals if you want to find those innovation diamonds in the rough? Well, one of the things that, that we were really interested in is thinking first about what makes a good innovator. And the nice thing about that is there's been a lot of uh, work in this field, although I don't know that anyone has done as much as we have to try to pull all those different traits together. So what we did is went out and looked at a number of traits that we found to be valuable in good innovation teams. We also looked at research. Um, for example, one of the books we pulled from is a book called The Innovator's DNA, where they mentioned five traits, associating, observing, questioning, experimenting, and so forth. And we felt like that's a, that's a nice start, but it's not enough. So we applied some of our own learning, and, and a couple of the things that we found and we've always experienced are almost counterintuitive in a business setting. For example, one of the traits that we think is very important is empathy. If innovation is about uncovering new needs or discovering needs that clients have, then I need to be able to walk a mile in that individual's shoes. But empathy isn't necessarily something that's necessarily valued in a corporate setting. Another one that we found was what we called humility or having a low ego. Again, maybe not as frequently found in a corporate setting, but humility and low ego represent the idea that no idea is ever implemented um, without change. And so if I have a deep possession of an idea or I won't allow others to add to it or modify it, I may be less successful as an innovator than someone who has a little bit lower ego and is willing to bring in different insights. So some of the traits we found are traits that are probably celebrated and recognized in many organizations. But then there were other traits that we identified that we felt like may not be as readily highlighted or as visible in organizations. So it's, a, it's an interesting mix. So are there, are there specific traits that are, that are dominant, or how can companies prioritize which ones are the most important to them? Well, we identified um, um, over 24 traits mm -hmm. over about a year's worth of research, talking to our clients, looking at the academic research, and just doing a lot of investigation, we found about 24 different traits. And I won't um, bore your listeners with all of them, but there were a few that we found to be very important. And so we grouped them into sort of primary and, and secondary traits. A couple of the ones that we thought were really important were important because they both drive um, better innovation, but they're also important because they tend to be more lacking in an, in an organization. So. They, they serve two purposes. They drive more innovation when they're available, but we also know that some of these traits tend to be lacking in organizations. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One that is often talked about in relation to someone like Steve Jobs is the idea of having a beginner's mind. What we know is that many people, when they approach a problem or an opportunity, they call on all the history that they have, all the experience that they have. What Jobs and other good innovators are able to do is do what, what's called approach a problem from a beginner's mind, meaning to look at it um, naively and without a lot of um, background or expertise so that by looking at it as if for the first time, you can solve it in a new way. And since we're so driven through expertise to bring our expertise to bear, a lot of times uh, organizations don't welcome or don't pr uh, promote the beginner's mind approach. Mm -hmm. There's a number of other traits as well that, that we looked at. We talked earlier about empathy and the ability to 
really walk a mile in your customer's shoes, not just hear what they're saying, but understand and have empathy in the sense that we can feel the way others feel. Um, another interesting one that we've done some work around is um, what we call flexibility. There's some really interesting research that says that um, people who are rule breakers are much more likely to be more creative and are more likely to bring innovative ideas. So the idea of being flexible with the rules, understanding that certain regulations or compliance needs exist, but also being willing to move beyond those in the range of innovation and idea creation, recognizing that then those ideas need to fit within the regulations or compliance rationale, or that the compliance and regulations need to change in some way. So there's a number of different kinds of traits. I've highlighted a few, and some of these are actually working against the way businesses work today. So for things like future orientation, we know that good innovators are constantly looking further out than their compatriots. And in a publicly traded firm, typically most people don't look much further than 90 days, which makes it very hard to think more disruptively. So some of these traits actually are perhaps discouraged to a certain extent within the modern business environment, and we need to rekindle them in order to get more innovation. Okay, got it. And so you, you mentioned that, uh, that for the innovation assessment tool in the white paper, you did a series of surveys and research conducted over the course of, of a year-long period. Did you find anything in all your studies and research that listeners might be surprised to know about, quote-unquote, the best innovators? Well, I've talked some about the traits. We also noticed that there were a couple of other things that, that we found interesting in our research in our discussions, the, um, the research we did actually looked at um, sort of three overlapping groups, demographics, psychographics, and habits or experiences. And if we look at each of those, there were things in there that, that surprised us to a certain extent. So, for example, we found on average that of the people we surveyed and the people we talked to, the best innovators were actually slightly older than their peers, which was interesting because most of us think that the um, – the younger people have more ideas. But the reason that we found that older innovators are a bit more successful is because they still have good ideas, but they also have some sense of how to implement them. So it's not just having ideas, but it's the ability to implement. The other thing we found is that the more diverse a work experience a person has, the more likely they are to be an innovator. So the, um, in some cases, we look at people who've had multiple jobs or worked in multiple industries as someone who can't necessarily find a home or be successful. But those different experiences lead them to be able to bring in different insights um, and different solutions from different industries, which often makes them more innovative. Another thing that we found is a good signal to find innovators is in their habits and experiences. For example, a couple of things that we found in our research is that People who have larger personal networks, whether that's a work network or a, just a friend's network, the larger and more extensive their networks are, the more likely they are to be innovative because they come in contact with more ideas or more information. Likewise, good innovators actually are people who tend to travel more frequently. And again, it's this idea of coming in contact with new experiences or new information. And the last one around habits and experience we found interesting is that it was demonstrated to us that good innovators often have some sort of a passion or a hobby away from work that allows them to explore their creative thinking or allows them to grow in some other way. And we think that that learning 
is something that constantly challenges them and allows them to bring those experiences back into their work life. So there were more than just the psychographic things I've talked about, like empathy and humility. There are some clear other signals that you can use to identify people who may have greater capacity for innovation. Okay, great. That's fascinating. So what were the, just out of curiosity, what was the sample size? Who were the people you were surveying? Can you give a little bit of background on, on, uh, on, on that? Sure. We worked um, in a couple of different surveys with several hundred uh, innovators from around the world that we recruited. Mm -hmm. And we also used some of our innovation counterparts in the innovation consulting world to help us to recruit people that they felt were, were good innovators. And then we also turned to our clients and we both used uh, initial research to identify people that we thought were good innovators and began to describe our thinking of them and get insights into the traits that seemed to make them successful. And once we had that, then we put together with an um, industrial psychologist, we sat down and used those traits to begin to build what, we, what we've described as the assessment. And we've piloted the assessment with several of OVO's clients to begin to see if the data would, out of the assessment, if the data would help us see the people who had the greatest propensity or capacity for innovation. And the nice thing that we found out of um, those beta tests of that assessment is that we began to identify people who had strong innovation capability um, by the way they responded to our assessment. In other words, we may have known some people within the organization but other people that we had not interacted with or known at all emerged out of the data, and we were able to go back to their managers and say, these individuals appear to be more innovative than their peers. Would you agree? And in almost every case, the answer came back yes, that we have, through the analysis, been able to identify people who perhaps the organization were overlooking um, and not incorporating into uh, innovation projects. Okay, great. And you talk some about uh, in the white paper that corresponds to the assessment tool or that you're releasing in, in conjunction with it, uh, some of the benefits that companies stand to gain from a deeper understanding uh, of really uncovering these innovators within their organization. Can you go over some of the benefits? Well, we think there are probably five um, really important benefits, um, and they're from the most tactical to the most strategic. At the most tactical level, what we can begin to do is help you decide is the team that I'm putting together, is that a dream team for innovation? Or am I putting together just another project team? By looking at the team, we can begin to ask questions around, do the people that we've placed on the team have um, strong proclivity for many of the traits that we said were necessary? So we can build better innovation teams and place the best and most innovative people on those teams. The second thing we can begin to do then is begin to identify gaps in organizational behavior and learning because it may be that certain organizations lack some of these traits uniformly. In fact, we found through our beta test that several of these traits are generally missing across every organization that we beta tested with. So we can begin to help them fill gaps either through training, so I begin to improve, make people aware of the importance of those traits and train them on those traits, or through recruiting. It may be that I decide that I need to build my strength in a particular trait, but I need to begin to recruit people into the organization. So those are sort of secondary actions that both recruiting and training. The third thing we can do is help people with their own personal development. 
because when we assess people, we assess the organization, but also each individual who responds, and we can give them a profile that suggests where they have strengths and where they may be lacking in particular traits vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the organization. So we can lay out and help them identify personal development plans. And the last action then is really about how to begin to lead and, and develop people. From a leadership perspective, how do we build and grow an organization that becomes more sustainably creative and more innovative over time? So there's a lot we can do with this kind of data from the very tactical at a team level to uh, corporate development and leadership development as well. Okay, so uh, staying on that topic and specifically on the last bullet point, I guess, uh, one of the anecdotes that you shared in the white paper was about personality traits, and I found it really interesting. It was on the topic of collaboration. So over the years, we've all kind of gotten it drilled into our heads that, uh, that Thomas Edison was a brilliant inventor who single-handedly brought the world the telephone, the motion picture camera, the light bulb, when in reality his Menlo Park lab was a bustling hub of, of collaboration. So how do we get to such a misguided notion of what innovation looks like? Well, I think, um, I think what happened with innovation is we often um, compare it to invention. And there are many people by themselves who can invent an idea or invent a technology, but that doesn't mean that it's then successfully commercialized. What Edison realized, and there's some good books by Sarah Caldicott on this, is that he would surround himself with good inventors and good tinkerers, and together they would begin to understand how to create solutions that they could commercialize. I think it's much easier to tell a story about one person, like we mentioned Steve Jobs earlier or Thomas Edison, but often when you look behind them, you'll see uh, a group of people that they collaborated with who actually added much more depth to their ideas and then made those ideas something that could be commercialized successfully. I think it's a, uh, a measure of how we tell stories that it's much easier to talk about an individual and their um, sort of end-to-end -end success as opposed to talk to all the things that were necessary to take an idea from first creation to final commercialization. Sure, that makes sense. So it's, it's a flaw as much in our storytelling mechanisms as it is uh, anything else. Well, sure, we want heroes, right? And it's <laughs> easier to talk about one hero than it is to talk about the eight to ten people that Edison constantly collaborated with. Okay, got it. So, as we mentioned in the intro, you blog often on innovation and have been since 2005, uh, one of the most popular innovation blogs on the web. Are there, do you see particular themes or topics that, that tend to be most popular among your readership? Well, there's, um, I write about a, a wide array of topics in innovation, basically whatever appeals to me on a particular day. Mm -hmm. And I think there are probably um, two things or two topics that are most compelling to people. One is how to apply specific tools or techniques. So there are a lot of tools and techniques in the innovation space, and I think people are easily confused or may even uh, have the impression that one tool or technique is all they need to know in order to be successful. So they may latch on to a particular tool or technique, not fully, under, fully understanding it and not fully having the ability to implement it effectively and get frustrated um, because it doesn't deliver everything they'd hoped for. So sometimes just writing about the use of a particular tool or technique and the context of a tool or technique is really valuable and seems to be much more uh, uptake of that particular writing. 
The other area where I notice a lot of uptake in my writing or when we comment on these particular things is really around what I'll call culture because most organizations and their cultures are really optimized around what we'll call business as usual, which was one of the themes of uh, Relentless Innovation, the book I wrote. So one of the things that we know from um, the research we did in Relentless Innovation is that um, business as usual, the sort of common operating models and processes and decision-making formats that dominate business today leave very little oxygen for innovation. And so that means that many innovators have to overcome these cultural biases already built into an organization, and they need to begin to adjust the culture to a certain extent to allow for both business as usual because you need to keep the lights on, you need to keep the uh, business operating efficiently, but in the meantime, there needs to be enough bandwidth and availability for new ideas. So it seems that when I write about culture, especially ways to um, sort of migrate the culture from a purely business-as-usual focus into something that begins to get um, a more healthy balance between business-as-usual and innovation, there seems to be a lot of uptake on that particular topic as well. So let me ask you, Jeffrey, about reward systems. That's one thing that you talk about in your writing some. What does a successful reward system look like, and what do companies get wrong when they set them up in the first place? Well, actually, one of the traits that um, I didn't mention earlier but we could talk about now is what we call intrinsic motivation. And here we pulled a lot from the thinking of Dan Pink and his book, Drive. What we know about good innovators, people who are really motivated to innovate, is that they're much more uh, motivated by solving the problem than they are about what's known as extrinsic rewards. Typically, when an organization puts too much emphasis on especially cash rewards or prizes or things like that, you tend to recruit people to the project or the activity who are really motivated by the reward, who seek out the reward, rather than people who are really interested in solving the problem. So when you set up an innovation activity and place too large a um, cash or prize award, you're really going to get a lot of ideas from people who are really seeking to win the prize as opposed to people who are really passionate about solving the problem. So one of the things that we really look at is how do we begin to reward people or recognize people who are true innovators? And the best ways to do that are allow them to be very engaged in the activity of creating the idea and commercializing that idea for as long and, and as in great a depth as possible as opposed to trying to add more and more cash rewards. Not saying the cash reward is wrong, it's just that they, there's too much imbalance between an intrinsic reward, which allows people to be engaged in their idea, and an extrinsic reward, which rewards people for cash or prizes based on submitting an idea. And that's why you have lots and lots of databases with really very incremental ideas, because that's, that's what we reward. We reward the submission of an idea, not the engagement with the idea over time. Okay, and, and why do you recommend making innovation programs or projects voluntary efforts? Well, that, again, that's um, a part of the uh, traits that we found and part of the experience that we've had is that people assigned to an innovation activity often go there with a lot of um, fear and a lot of risk associated with that. And we know that some of the traits of good innovators is that they are comfortable with ambiguity, they're comfortable with risk, and they are people who are anxious to solve a problem that they recognize. 
so the people most likely to volunteer for these kinds of activities are people who won't be stymied by the first barrier or the first hurdle they encounter. And every innovation activity encounters barriers and hurdles, whether they're cultural, whether they're financial, whether they're technical or for some other reason. And people who've been assigned to something that they didn't have a lot of passion for tend to get discouraged at the first barrier hurdle and drop off the project or focus their attention somewhere else. Whereas people who have a lot of passion for this kind of a, a challenge or an opportunity, they won't get stymied at the first problem or the first barrier. They'll continue to work. So what we're looking for are people who will voluntarily give up some of their time because they have passion, and that passion is going to propel them to do more on an innovation activity than people who are merely assigned to the project. Okay, great. And you mentioned uh, you mentioned your book, which is uh, Relentless Innovation, What Works, What Doesn't, and What That Means for Your Business. You've also mentioned a few other resources that listeners may find helpful over the course of the podcast, uh, the book Innovator's DNA, Dan Pink's Drive, and if you're interested in Edison, Sarah Coldicott's book on Edison, any other resources out there that you would recommend listeners take a look at uh, if they are looking to figure out how to uncover some of those innovation diamonds in the rough in their companies? Well, as, as we mentioned earlier in the, in the uh, podcast, we will be publishing a white paper. And in that white paper, we list a number of books, including some that you've mentioned, Dan Pink's Drive, The Innovator's DNA, um, some of Sarah Caldicott's work on Edison, and some other books as well, um, as well as some academic uh, research and some white papers that we pulled from. So the white paper will have an overview of each of the traits, and will also point out some of the resources we pulled from in order to pull the traits together, and then some actions on um, what are the next steps you can do in terms of trying to implement some of the traits that we've identified and or the opportunity to participate and use the assessment within your organization. Um, and the assessment will also be um, available here just in a few days. Good deal. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jeffrey. Much appreciated. Uh, some great advice to uncover the hidden innovators in your organization. Uh, keep an eye on, on his work at uh, innovateonpurpose.blogspot.com and go to OVO Innovation for the white paper and innovation assessment. Thanks again, Jeffrey. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Will. That's going to be a wrap for this week's episode of the Innovation Engine Podcast. Usually this is the part of the episode where I say don't forget to tune in to next week's episode. But next week I'll be letting my Innovation Engine idol from the tropical paradise known as Maui. We'll be back on a regularly scheduled date of June 6th to talk innovation in the law with three prominent DC intellectual property lawyers. And on June 13th, to speak with best-selling author and futurist Daniel Burris about how to harness anticipation to drive your company's innovation efforts. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you in two weeks.